Ephesians. Let me talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus because Paul's writing to Christians who are living in a very particular culture and who therefore are facing um, unique struggles in that culture to follow Christ. Ephesus was a large city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. Rome was the largest. The second was Alexandria in Egypt. And the third was Ephesus in Asia Minor. Ephesus was a coastal city. It's not anymore. Eventually, silt came in and the whole city was abandoned because it was no longer a port city. But in Paul's day, it was a bustling port city. It is estimated that 200,000 people lived within the city walls. 200,000 people. That is a monstrous city for that day and age. It was a wealthy city. It was a very multi-ethnic city. The uh, indigenous Ionians were there. Then the Greeks had conquered it. They were there. Now the Romans had control. So you had Latin speakers there. The Persians had come, the Parthians, the Jews. Uh, It was a, a melting pot of culture and language. It was a very religious city, Uh, a religiously pluralistic city, over 50 gods and goddesses worshipped. But by far and away, it was the goddess Artemis that dominated the city. Outside the city walls was the temple to Artemis. Four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it drove a lot of the economy in Ephesus. As people from all around the world would come to worship uh, this goddess uh, Artemis. Where the Romans uh, referred to her as Diana. And they, they had all kinds of gold and bronze and ivory statues to her that people bought. It was a... It was a fundamental economic driver in the city. Ephesus was also a center of magical practice. There was a a definite belief in uh, the spirits, and magic was and is an attempt to harness the power of the spirits on your behalf. So Ephesus was a center of magical practice. And there was Jew and Gentile tension in the city. We know that. These Jews, they were monotheistic. Uh, They did not participate in the worship of Artemis. They didn't participate or or buy any of the the idols and, and things like that. And so that put them definitely out of step. Also ethically, their sexual ethic and other ethics put them out of step with um, general Ephesus society. And then, of course, Christians had a similar fate. Uh, in fact, there's this amazing story in, uh, in Acts where the apostle Paul, by the way, Paul pastored in Ephesus for three years, and God gave Paul tremendous um, effectiveness, and lots of people came to Christ. And these were Yeah, there were some Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but predominantly these are Gentiles uh, who are becoming Christians. And when they become Christians, they abandon the worship of other gods. And the idol makers in Ephesus have seen such a drop in uh, buying of their wares that they get concerned and foment a mob. And there's this scene in Acts where they're in the great amphitheater of Ephesus. I have a picture of that here. And they're chanting, Artemis of the Ephesians, Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're demanding that Paul be killed and the Romans have to come 
uh, kind of whisk Paul away so he doesn't get killed by the mob. So Christianity is, uh, it is gaining, gaining great, uh, great following in Ephesus. Paul was there for three years. And it was through that ministry that the other seven churches in Asia Minor were planted. They're spoken of in the book of Revelation. Uh, but Paul's gone now. In fact, Paul's in prison when he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And it's, many believe that Ephesians is the last letter Paul wrote. And so it certainly reflects um, kind of uh, his most mature theological expressions. Many of these great truths that he has worked out in books like Romans, he just summarizes very pithily uh, in these amazing statements in Ephesus. So it's going to be cool. We're going to, it's an amazing study we're going to have here over the next three months. And I encourage you to give yourself to it. All right. So our Bibles are open. We're now at Ephesus, looking at chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who wrote this letter? Paul. Paul. Paul the Apostle. Now the word apostle in Greek simply means sent one. But here it's being used in its technical sense as one of those few men that God commissioned to lead his church. Into a correct understanding of the significance of Christ's first coming and uh, how to behave in the new age or the covenant age. Now, if somebody tells you today, oh, there are still apostles, apostles today, uh, you need to ask them, what, what do you mean by that? Because there are no more apostles in this technical sense. Paul was the final apostle. That's why we will no longer have uh, books of the Bible written. No one else has been commissioned by God to speak authoritatively to the church about uh, the implications and expectations of Christ's coming and the church's mission. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, in the, uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, we are told that it's a noble thing to desire to be a pastor or an elder in, in the church, and it's okay to raise your hand and say, hey, I would like to spend my time and energy doing that noble task. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our elders distinctly remember having lunch with him, and I was asking, so what are your you know, hopes and dreams when you retire? And he said, well, one of the things I'd like to do is become an elder. Totally appropriate. But here Paul is saying, you know, I didn't ask for this. <laughs> God commissioned me for this role. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. By the way, I, I should mention that Paul is pointing out to the Ephesians the authority he has uh, in this letter. It's not just, you know, Brother Paul uh, writing you some, you know, ex exhortations. This is the Apostle Paul. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this letter is written to Christians, to people who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and are determined to follow him. Who are in Ephesus... Now, some have questioned whether in Ephesus was in Paul's original letter because there are four of the earliest and best attested manuscripts that uh, do not include in Ephesus, but the other almost 5,000 do. It seems 
more plausible to me that these few scribes ex, uh, took in Ephesus out because they were going to circulate Paul's letter uh, to non-Ephesian audiences. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And this is Paul's desire, what he longs for his fellow Christians in Ephesus to experience. Grace is, has two meanings, undeserved favor. You, the favor of God gets poured out in your life and you didn't deserve it. That's God's grace. It's also divine empowerment. We need the grace of God to bear up under adversity. We need the grace of God to say no to sin, the grace of God to do what God has called us to do. And sometimes in the scriptures, one of those meanings seems to be more prominent. The other here, I think Paul is thinking of both. He wants the Christians in Ephesus to experience the divine unmerited favor of God and the divine empowerment of God in their lives. Grace to you and peace. Shalom. That sense of wholeness and well-being that comes about primarily through right relationship. Right relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, with the, the natural world. This is more than a salutation. It is an invitation. That one you can write down. That's worth writing down. It's not even in my bulletin notes, but that was good. This is more than a salutation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to go to God, your heavenly father, for grace and peace. This is not a grace and peace that come from your own good perspective and a grace and peace that come from your own strength. It's a grace and peace that comes from God, our father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But you got to bring your need to God. You have to go to the Lord and cast your anxieties upon him and say, God, I have need of you acting on my behalf. I need your grace in my life. I need your peace in my life. And so maybe right now you need to just stop. That's the end of the sermon for you. You need to begin responding. And you need to take that need to God, your heavenly father, and ask for his grace. Ask for his peace. It might be that you are acutely aware that you do not deserve the favor of God, but you desperately need God's favor in your life. You need him acting on your behalf. And you think, I don't deserve that. Well, if you're a Christian, he's your father. And, he, and just human fathers give good gifts to their children, how much more your heavenly father. And so you go and you say, I'm not worthy, God but you are gracious. And so I come to you and I ask for your grace to be poured out in this need in my life. It might be empowerment. You, you are struggling with sin and you need God to break the power of that sin in your life. Or you are up, you are just being pressed down in life hardships and you need empowerment to bear up under the weight. You need peace. Uh, you, you are feeling so anxious, your relationships are in turmoil, and you need the God of peace to act first in your own heart, to give you his peace that passes all understanding, to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, and then extend his peace into all of your relationships. 
This is more than a salutation. This is an invitation to the people of God. Then we have verses 3 through 14, which in Greek is one sentence. It is one long, uh, unbroken sentence. And thank you for the uh, translation committee that has worked so hard to make it a little bit more digestible to us. But it's one sentence in part because it's a giant baraka, which is a, a giant praise to the Lord. Paul just starts Beginning, he begins to praise God, and he, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to take a breath until verse 14. He just gets so excited, and, and the, the truths are just flowing out of him. The truths that animate his worship uh, are, are just flowing out of him. By the way, theology is not dry. Theology drives our worship of God. And don't be lazy Christians because you know who you get hurt for sure, but God gets robbed, robbed of his glory. When we, th- when we think about and understand and chew on and meditate and ingest truths about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it, res- it will result in praise to God. And so the lazy Christian doesn't give God the, the glory that he deserves. It's, don't be content with, oh, my sins are forgiven. I'm going to go to heaven someday. There's so much more that Christ has done for you. And you can understand it and you can respond to it and apply it to your life today. And it will result in glory to God, which is our ultimate purpose in life. Don't be a lazy Christian. Work to understand the blessings that God has given you in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We bless God because God has blessed us in Jesus. And then he talks about some of those blessings here. Why in the heavenlies? Because he's talking here about heavenly blessings, spiritual blessings. Now, God does bless us in, the, in, in this world, uh, but those are, are not the promises. We have every right to go to our heavenly father and say, would you please heal me physically, God? I'm sick. We have every right to go and say, God, would you please bless me financially? Take care of me, provide me. And he often answers those pray, prayers in the way that we wish. But what Paul's talking about here. The Christian struggling to make ends meet on the streets of Calcutta has just as much as the Christian with the big house and the swimming pool and the cars and the jet and the big padded savings account. These are blessings in Christ that are ours and are secure and all Christians uh, in all Christians have them, possess them equally. But we don't all enjoy them and unpack them equally. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Underline in Christ. Everything that God has for you comes to you through Jesus Christ. God has nothing for you outside of Jesus. There is no blessing of God hidden for you in the, in the five pillars of Islam or accessible to you through the eightfold noble path of the Buddha. No, 
Everything that God has for you comes to you in Christ. And why is that? It's because Jesus is the one who has won the favor of God. It's Jesus who obeyed the Father all the way to the point of death. It's the, Jesus the one that ultimately God blesses. And, and because we are united with Christ by faith, we share in his blessings. So God hasn't blessed you apart from Jesus. He blesses you in Jesus. So don't you dare cut yourself off from faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to enjoy the blessings of God, press into Jesus more. It's in Christ that God blesses us. Then he goes on to identify five blessings. Let me hit them really fast. Uh, the first blessing here is found in verses 4 through 6, and we're going to uh, meditate more on this one today. And that's the fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be adopted into his family. The second blessing is found in verses 7 and 8. And it's the blessing of being redeemed from spiritual slavery. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The third blessing is the fact that God has revealed to us uh, his ultimate plan. And what is that plan? It is to, uh, it's a, verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him or in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. We understand that the plan has always been about Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to unite the whole world in Christ. The fourth blessing is found in verses 11 and 12, and it's the blessing of our lives bringing glory to God. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And the fifth blessing, the final one, is found in verses 13 and 14, and it's the blessing of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, or verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth... Somebody preached the gospel to you. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So how did you respond to the gospel? With belief. And you believed in him because the gospel is all about uh, God's love for you in Jesus. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So if somebody says to you, you must be filled with the Spirit. You need to ask, well, what do you mean by that? Because every Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we don't get half the Holy Spirit. We get the whole Holy Spirit. And if, if you have believed in the gospel, you've responded to the gospel in faith, the Spirit of, of the living God indwells you. Now, if what they mean by that is be filled with the Spirit surrender your life completely to him and allow him to control you and, and direct you. Absolutely, we all need to be filled with the Spirit. Paul talks about that as being keeping in step with the Spirit, letting him lead us. But the Holy Spirit seals us. It's, he is the guarantee of our inheritance. What does that mean? It means the Spirit of God is indwelling us is God's uh, Claiming possession of us. 
You are mine. You will not be lost. You can be assured that the spirit of God who indwells you will bring you back to life someday to be with me in the same way that the spirit brought Christ back from the dead. This possession of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be walking through this text over the next few weeks and unpack these glorious blessings that we have in Jesus. But today, we're just going to focus here on verses 4 through 6. The first blessing, the fact that we've been chosen for adoption into God's family. So, we, we bless God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And now, he, in verse 4, he begins to name them. The first is this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light, he was thinking of you. Let that sink in. Feel that. Before God said, let there be light, he had you in his mind, and he said, I choose you. I choose you for me. I'm going to adopt you into my family and you're going to inherit all of my riches. And before you too quickly gloss over that, understand that God did not choose everyone. Clear teaching of the Bible. Not everyone has been chosen to be a child of God. I don't understand the mechanics of all this. Christians debate the mechanics. But that is the clear teaching of Scripture. God chose me. If you're a Christian, that is the truth of you. God chose me. Feel that. God of the universe said, you I choose for my own. And so sometimes these, sometimes we can't get our heads fully around these truths and we just accept them by faith. But when we receive them by faith, then they begin to transform our lives. So together with me, I want you to say out loud, God chose me. Ready? God chose me. Say it one more time. God chose me. Every human asks the question, am I significant? God chose me answers the significance question. It doesn't get much more significant than that. I'm important to God. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Another question we all have, what's the purpose of life? There we go. God chose us for a purpose. And the purpose is to be, blameless, uh, to be holy and blameless before him. Before him. In relationship with him. We live our lives in relationship with God. We live before him. Every, even when we are on our own or, or up here in the privacy of our own minds, we are living before our God. And the purpose of my life and the purpose of your life is to be holy and blameless before God. Holy means to be set apart, like the utensils in the temple. And they weren't set apart and put into a closet and never used. They were set apart for a purpose. And the purpose was to uh, bring about worship of God, to facilitate the worship of God. And that's 
our purpose to be set apart uh, for the service of the Lord. And so we very practically say, God, I am your servant. Use me however you wish. And to be blameless. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And we are to uh, pattern our lives after him. And so moral purity is a very important part of the Christian life. What's my purpose in life? My purpose in life is not to get rich. My purpose in life is not to be applauded by man. My purpose in life is not to live as long as I possibly can and have comfort and pleasure. The purpose of my life is to be holy and blameless before God. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love. So it wasn't just a calculated, uh, dispassionate choice. The Bible is very clear. God loves us. Now, God loves the whole world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Elsewhere we're told God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God loves the whole world. Yes, but not in this way. There is a special love that God has for the Christian. Because not everyone is part of the family. Not everyone has been chosen for adoption. Now, Don't get hung up on the question of am I chosen or not. The biblical answer to that is if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. So the answer uh, to whether or not you are chosen is are you going to respond to the gospel? Will you believe in the gospel? And if you will, there you go. It's been revealed that you're chosen. But if you persist in your rebellion, if you persist in your unbelief, you persist in your stubbornness until death, then you reveal that you weren't chosen. But you have the choice. You have the power to make that choice. In love. So we got to say this. God loves me. That's the truth of the Bible. Ready? God loves me. Now, close your eyes. God knows you. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you will do. He knows your flaws and your failures. He knows the worst thing you've ever done. And yet, Christian, he loves you in Christ. Say it one more time. God loves me. We all need to have this question answered, am I loved? And the biblical answer is, you are loved by the one who made you and knows you best. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Now, there are many women in the room, and you might be thinking, do I have to think of myself as a son You're a child of God. But he's using the word son here uh, intentionally because this is all about inheritance. And in in Paul's day, it was the sons who inherited the, the family's fortune. And so you have been adopted 
you have been chosen by God, predestined for adoption as sons. Uh, we tend to think of adoption as the selection of a little baby, and then they come and grow up in our family. In Paul's day, oftentimes adoption was the adoption of grown men, like in the movie Ben-Ur. He gets adopted. And so uh, the, um, the one who owned the inheritance, the father, would sometimes adopt uh, a grown man outside the family, bring him in so that uh, they would inherit the fortune of the family. And so that's what's happening is God has adopted you, male or female, uh, to become the inheritor of the riches of God. So, I am God's child. Let's say that. I am God's child. And so what's my inheritance? Eternal life is the biblical shorthand. That's absolutely right. Biblical shorthand is eternal life for the riches of God. And all that he has, he makes available to us in Jesus. Why? Why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? Why did he in, uh, love us? And why is he adopting us? Is it because we're awesome? Is it even because God looked down the corridor in, of time and saw that I would be worthy? Well, the answer is given to us right here in verse uh, in verse 6, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's own purposes, and he doesn't reveal all of his purposes to us. For, for God's, because of God's own will, he chose you. For his own reasons, he chose to love you and adopt you into his family. And it's, it's also for the praise of his glorious grace. God knows that those who did not deserve his favor, but upon whom he has lavished his favor, will for all of eternity say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And for all of eternity, God is going to be praised by those who have received his grace. Will you be someone who through all of eternity praises, praises God because you have been so blessed? The Bible just invites you over and over and over again. The Bible says that I, as a preacher of the gospel, am an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And I am inviting you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in God's son, Jesus Christ. And, and receive the blessings in Christ in your own life. It all ends, verse 14, with to the praise of his glory. So I'm going to invite the band uh, back up here and we're going to respond by praising God and worshiping him as we, as we should. And as they're coming up, let me just, I want to sit on this. What is, what is going on in Paul's heart, his mind, when he says, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be. 
So blessed be. What are we saying? What we're saying is, God, we want you to... We want you to have what you want. We want you to have what is is rightfully yours. God, we want people to speak truthfully about you. God, we want people to run to you, not run from you, because that's the longing of your heart. God, we want people not to fight against you, but surrender to you and to be your servants. God, we want it to be done on earth as it is in heaven so that there is nothing offending you, Lord, nothing grieving you. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be the the true cry of our hearts that we want God to be blessed because we are so overwhelmed with his blessings for us in Christ Jesus. Please stand and let's worship our worthy God together.